0: Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
1: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz along with my co-host Justin Ritchie.
1: Hey Seth, it is good to be back for another episode of The Extra Environmentalist. Episode number 14. Did you ever think when we put together that first episode that we'd be here 14 episodes in and with so many amazing listeners and so many great people who are interacting with us because of the show.
0: I'll tell you what, Justin, this podcast has been a source of positive energy in my life. And I am very grateful that I have been a part of it. And the amount of people that we talk to is just incredible. And the amount of people that we're influencing is just growing every day. I think it's an incredible thing. And it kind of just goes to show you that if you put your energy towards a positive project, even if that project is small it grows into something you know
1: really amazing i don't even remember how i got out of the bed in the morning before the podcast i must say yeah yeah i understand what you mean <laughs> every day i wake up and i'm like i wonder
0: how many people listened to it last night
1: or I, I always think like who should we try to get to interview today it'll be so exciting
0: so justin tell me what's been going on in uh, the world of british columbia
1: yeah, British Columbia has seen spring start. The dustings of snow on the tops above Vancouver has become slightly less and less, and the rain has picked up a little bit more and more. And you know how they say here in Vancouver, April showers bring more rain, really.
0: Just more rain. Always yeah. the rain. Actually, it rained last night here in North Carolina, but uh, the day before it did not rain.
1: I've been reading about all of these tornadoes and stuff going through Georgia and North Carolina and... Seems like it's pretty early in the year to have such extreme weather. Seems
0: Sorry. pretty nice today. I wore a sweatshirt and some pants. So things, North Carolina, are got some uh, running in in a local road race, and I uh, ran ten miles in about seventy six minutes, which which is for you wow. runners out there is a pretty fast clip of a pace.
1: And for sluggish people like me, that's warp speed essentially. Yeah, basically, my shoes
0: were flying, maybe Pegasus.
1: No, uh, I guess Hermes. Hermes. He, he had the... Mercury was the Roman version. He had the wings on his feet. Right.
0: Carried the sun on his back? No.
1: I don't think so.
0: <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> mythology is not our forte. But what is our forte is talking to interesting people, like the man that we talked to today, which is uh, David Montgomery, and his work, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilization. And we talked to him today. What did David have to say, Justin? Anything interesting?
1: Dave Montgomery spoke with us about his book that dives into the historical issues of topsoil erosion and how it affected population densities of civilizations. So in layman's terms, it caused civilizations to decline because their soil and agricultural practices slowly eroded their way of life. One key example is North Africa now. What do we see happening? There's tremendous riots, unrest, and a lot of that happened because they import so much food there. And the reason they import so much food is because their soil is absolutely depleted. The soil depletion occurred because of the agricultural practices that led to soil erosion and now it's all sand. Iraq is another excellent example. It used to be fertile rivers and the breadbasket of civilization, you know, the fertile crescent, but now it's just all useless land and that's because humans have been there for a long time and slowly eroded away the useful topsoil and now it's very much unlivable when it comes to growing your own food and being sustainable.
0: Yeah, there's a direct correlation between how a society takes care of their soil and their farmland. to the duration of this society's existence that's what david talks about in his book and it's very interesting something that we don't normally think about on a regular basis that's what we deal with on this show is stuff that you don't normally think about on your normal day-to-day large questions that just kind of boggle your mind you're like wow i didn't even think about that but that's what we do here on a regular basis and that's why you listen to us right exactly enjoy the show and we'll catch you on the flip side
1: You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Dr. Dave Montgomery, author of Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. Today we're speaking with Dave Montgomery. You're a professor of earth and space sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle, where you head the geomorphological research group. Your research is on the evolution of topography and the influence of geomorphological processes on ecological systems and human societies. And in 2008, you won the Washington State Book Award for Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, which we're here to talk about today. Is there anything I can add into your intro? Uh,
2: no, that's a, a pretty good intro. That might, Some people may not know what a geomorphologist is, but the description of uh, someone who
1: studies topography pretty much nails it. Do you want to extrapolate a little bit on what a geomorphologist does?
2: Oh, sure. A, you A know, hundred years ago, I might have been called a topographer, someone who studies the evolution of topography. A geomorphologist is that kind of geologist that studies the dynamics of the forces that shape the surface of the Earth, literally the processes that shape the ground that we Walk around on that we live on that we know, and to me it's fascinating because it's the part of geology that is sort of one foot in the here and now and one foot in the past and the things that have shaped landscapes. But you know, we live on the surface of the Earth. We draw our sustenance from the surface of the Earth. Everything we do, unless we get on an airplane, happens on the surface of the Earth. And so it's that part of geology that's really related to uh, things that I think we can relate to in our everyday lives but that we don't tend to think about. We don't think about landscapes as, as changing, sometimes fairly rapidly, sometimes uh, fairly slowly, changing nonetheless. And I'm the kind of geologist who pokes his nose into trying to understand how that works.
0: So as any high school student knows who's taken a geology class, the study of geology is the study of rocks, and you're never supposed to call soil dirt. Why write a book about the relationship between human society and the relationship to soil?
2: Well, in part because soil is the most fundamental resource that uh, humanity has on this planet, Uh, we grow our food out of it. It supports literally, it supports the foundation for supporting life on the continents, and yet we tend to treat it like dirt. Um, You know, I titled the book "Dirt" in uh, great part because of the way humanity has been treating soil uh, since the dawn of agriculture has led to the accelerated erosion and depletion of soils and the the loss of soil and its movement off of where it formed in the landscape to other places. And we've literally been making our living now for thousands of years turning soil into dirt. And yet it's the most fundamental resource that we depend on. It forms at a pace pretty slow by natural processes. Um, It's not exactly a, a renewable resource relying on natural processes because they're so slow there's a um, underappreciated problem of the global degradation of soils today It's kind of the environmental crisis that we face as a species that doesn't get very much attention, in part because it plays out fairly slowly. So I wrote this book to try and call attention to the fundamental importance of soils for human societies, but also to advertise that that we actually have a real global problem with the way that we're treating them.
1: Um, So why is there so much focus on issues such as uh, climate change and maybe even less focus, but still more focus on something like peak oil. And then very rarely does any discussion about topsoil erosion enter into the mainstream discourse.
2: I, I think that problem has its root in a couple phenomena. One, I think most people just aren't aware of the problem. Scientific community hasn't done a terribly great job in advertising problems that we face in terms of global soil degradation. Or maybe it's that people just don't think that soil and dirt are sexy enough to worry that much about. But I think the other... And perhaps the real root of the problem lies in the fact that soil erosion is a process that plays out fairly slowly. If you look at the rate of global soil loss today, we're losing on average something around like a millimeter a year off of our cropland globally, the the, the good fertile soils that we tend to grow food from. And a millimeter a year sounds like a really slow rate. And In fact, it is a fairly slow rate. Your fingernails grow faster than that. But if you look at it in terms of the relationship of the pace at which soils are produced, it's actually screamingly fast. If you think about how thick soils are on the surface of the Earth, they're anywhere usually from about one to three feet thick is sort of a good average range. And if you think about the diameter of the Earth compared to that, our skin, the skin on our bodies is much thicker relative to our body size than the skin of the earth soil is to the planet. And to erode off a one to three foot thick sort of a half a meter to a meter foot thick section of soil off of the landscape at a pace of a millimeter a year, it takes less than a thousand years. And if you look back at the lifespan of uh, many major civilizations, that's about the order of magnitude uh, with which they were able to prosperously pursue uh, very intensive
0: farming. We deal with some large questions on this show, questions that in their nature threaten society in a long-term way. Do societies like soil choose to succeed or fail, or do they erode over time?
2: Well, it's my contention that they essentially erode over time. One of the main points that I tried to make in Dirt was the argument that the way that people treated land, whether by design or by accident, what has been historically conventional agriculture, plow-based agriculture, has influenced the ability of the land to support populations over the long run. if you think about it as sort of the that the way people have treated land has influenced the way that land can treat people over the long run that if you look at the long sort of the long periodicity patterns in the rise and fall of human societies that it's correlated to the health and state of the land that they were um, farming in effect which is not to say that other factors aren't going to be the trigger that sort of pulls Uh, It pulls the trigger on uh, the end of a civilization: a a climate change, a a great drought, politics, wars, social interactions—the kind of things that we tend to look at as the driving forces in history. But underneath all that, setting the stage for human interactions with the environment and with other societies, is simply the ability of the land to support large populations of people. Those patterns that you can see back through the history of human societies I think are of great interest in thinking about the future of humanity, because if there is something to that argument, and I think at a very fundamental level, it's a pretty good argument, it has some real messages for the next several centuries as a pivotal point in the history of our species.
1: What's some of the best evidence, maybe from a few historical examples, of the ways in which civilizations were really affected by the topsoil erosion that they were experiencing due to their agricultural practices.
2: Well, you know, there's sort of a rich suite of examples to choose from. To me, the most compelling evidence is actually the similarity of many of the sort of stories of different civilizations if you account for their different geographies, their different points in history, then the different cultures that that were developed on the land. And that basic story that emerges or the, the story that I drew together in the book that seems to characterize many societies is that farming would begin essentially in low-lying areas, often uh, in estuaries like the the Tigris and Euphrates, or along fertile river floodplains like along the Nile or many of the rivers in China or the Indus. Places where there's relatively flat ground that's relatively easily worked because it's Mostly alluvium, stuff deposited by the river, so there aren't giant boulders in it and so forth. And places where water essentially comes to you, because it's in the lowlands. And that as populations rose, when farming practices improved to the point that a few people could support more people, that people weren't just feeding themselves on a little plot of land... As population went up, farming moved up into upland environments, or as population spread. But once farming began to spread into upland areas, and the story seems to hold from East to, to Asia to uh, Mesoamerica and to the Pacific Islands, that farming using Techniques that leaves the ground bare and vulnerable to erosion for some part of the year allow erosion to start racing ahead of soil production. And you literally start the clock ticking on how long it'll take before the upland environments are no longer agriculturally productive. You essentially need and rely on those upland environments. It sets the stage for an inversion in sort of the relationship between the supply of fertile soil and the population that is uh, seeking to draw sustenance from it. And you can think of that ratio of societies that are on the ascendancy If there's more fresh land with fertile soil so that you can continue to expand, um, it's a recipe for growth. On the other hand, if you have a population that is larger than you can uh, comfortably feed and there's not much new land to spread into or the land that you're working on is being degraded over time, that's a recipe for essentially um, hitting some kind of a limit or at least, if not running into a real limit, sapping the resilience of a society. And that's, I think, the real worry that I have for the next century or two, and probably less than a century actually, is whether we're essentially repeating that mistake. And if you look at different societies, there's different kinds of evidence that are available for different periods in history. If you look back at, say, the Bronze Age in, in Europe, for which sort of the first cycles of what looked like anthropogenic soil erosion and then soil degradation and population response occurred. It's, you know, the, the evidence is fragmentary. You're really deep, dealing with deep archaeology. As you move into the world of classical Greece and the Roman Empires and the Mayan Empire and the Pacific Islanders, there are some accounts that can be brought in. Contemporary accounts. The, the Roman agricultural writers, for example, are full of interesting examples in hindsight about their observations of the way that the, the land changed over the course of Roman history. As Again, of course, as you come into the more modern environment of looking at, say, the role of soil degradation on the American South and the American Push West, which was in great part pushed by degradation of soils along the eastern seaboard, there's much better contemporary accounts. There's even the ability to go back, uh, generate data on the spatial extent of the loss of soils. And then if you look at the sort of the contemporary world of the last 50 years, there's lots of studies where people have actually quantified and documented rates of soil loss relative to rates of soil production, so observations and data that you have for different societies change a lot based on which one you're talking about and what point in history it was from. But the basic underlying story is remarkably similar in terms of the the fundamental dependence of societal prosperity on an adequate supply of healthy fertile soil to feed the people. (laughs)
0: Today on The Extra Environmentalist, we talk to David Montgomery, author of the book Dirt, Erosion of Civilizations. Humans are not built to deal with these long-term questions and these global issues that we face in our increasingly connected and globalized world. We have a hard time thinking long-term. Is it right for humans to take this sort of laissez-faire attitude towards soil erosion, or is this an issue that we need to think about more long-term and have some long-term planning things in effect?
2: Well, you know, that really is the million-dollar question because it's uh, we're not very good at thinking about long-term problems. We are, I think, mentally hardwired to be very good at reacting to short-term stimuli, perhaps wired for short-term decision-making. Yet if you look at the, sort of, uh, the things that could affect us over the, the long run – the problem of soil erosion really is going to be critical for future generations. And so the answer to your question really depends on how one views the obligations of people alive today to those who will come in the future. Because with a process that occurs slowly enough that it's difficult to actually recognize over the lifetime say of an individual farmer it really is hard to motivate people to get uh, worked up about the crisis of soil erosion because of the slow pace of it and ironically that you know that sometimes the things that are happening the slowest can be the most difficult for us to actually get on with the problem of trying to address. And how critical a problem is it? I actually view it as an absolutely fundamental problem facing humanity because if there's one resource that we actually depend on that I can imagine no substitute for, it's fertile soil. And why? Well, because almost all of our some something like 97% of our food comes from the soil. And the possible replacements for soil would be so energy dependent in terms of being able to let's say manufacture all the components of fertilizers that would be needed to feed the world using hydroponic systems for example that's science fiction unless somebody invents a sort of a cheap clean or free and clean energy source in the future in which case everything changes but there's one thing we're certain i think is not going to happen in the next hundred years it's that the price of oil is going to go down or stay even where it is today it's going to go through the roof why well because we're virtually at peak oil um know, plus or minus a few years depending on whose data you want to look at or argue about but it, any kind of economic analysis would suggest that a resource that society is fundamentally hooked on that starts to become scarce the price is going to go through the roof that suggests to me that the need to conserve the ability of soils and natural native soil fertility to produce food is going to become an increasingly important and fundamental issue for us as a species. To me, three things that we're absolutely certain that future generations are going to need. They're going to need air, water, and food. There's you know, Biologically, there's no argument around that. How we will produce those in the future? You know, clean water, fresh air, and good food are, are the desirable components. And so what is our obligation today? to preserve the ability of this planet to feed people into the future. It's a fundamental, moral, and ethical question that I think that really, ourselves as individuals and our descendants, a disservice
1: In some ways, are we talking about our descendants, our future generations, or are we talking about us now? Because one of the interesting things I learned from your book was about North Africa and how in many ways it was considered the granary of the ancient world and relieved famines in Greece and, and fed Rome and there were many battles over the fertile soil there. But now we see tremendous food crises in these nations and they're collapsing, falling apart because for a lot of reasons, but partially one of the major sparks is because the people can't afford to eat there because they import so much food. All of those nations are among the largest per capita food importers in the world. So in some ways, are we dealing with the problems of topsoil depletion now already? You know, I think we're starting to probably see the leading edge of that. If,
2: if you look at the the food production problem as a global scale we grow enough food to feed everybody on the planet at present we just don't distribute it in ways that it would allow everybody to eat on their budget and so you could view that as either sort of a fundamental political problem which in many ways it is today, but you can also view it as sort of the leading edge of the possibility of essentially the intersection of declining food production and a rising population in different parts of the world. And if there's one thing that would really motivate people to try and I don't know, take to the streets, it would motiv- motivate a revolution, it's if you can't afford to feed yourself, it's one thing you actually fundamentally need to do. It's a little hard to imagine how the, the problem of soil depletion uh, would play out over the next, say, decade to century But I would imagine that you would see exactly the kind of thing that you're pointing to in terms of it's going to affect some regions before it affects others. It'll be the regions where the land is most degraded and the economy's been dragged down and society's been impoverished for a while. And some of the areas around the Mediterranean are good classical examples of that. But one of the realities, I think, of sort of an integrated global society is that those kinds of disturbances may not stay regional in the sense that they will have ripple effects around the world. One of the disturbing things I learned in doing the background research for the book was that globally we only have on hand something like about a three or four month, I think it is at this point, supply of food at any one time. We're essentially globally living sort of harvest to harvest. And the idea that there could be some kind of crisis in global food production that relates from either a year or multiple years of bad harvests around big regions. With a global economy, that kind of stress is going to essentially ripple around the world. Prices will go up. Those who have the best ability to pay may be insulated from that. And so that I think you would see the problem be sort of born on the backs of those least able to support themselves. The, the world's poor don't have the ability to grow their own food, so the world's urban poor for the the most part, I think, would be the populations that would be hardest hit. And that's the recipe for food rights.
0: Um, so maybe going a little bit off of that idea of hunger, can you talk a little bit about the role that hunger has played in civil unrest and on war throughout history?
2: You know, I haven't researched that terribly directly. I, I, I stayed fairly focused on the uh, the sort of feedback and connections with soil, and there's other things that have affected hunger as well. But there was, say, in the Roman Empire, it was viewed as absolutely critical to the political stability of Rome to keep the food coming from North Africa and from uh, from Egypt after the central Italy had depleted its own upland soils and Rome became very, very dependent on food imported from the colonies. Why was it so important? Well, because one of the ways that political control was exerted in Rome was that the people in Rome had access to food on the government government food. That's where this whole sort of bread and circus uh, idea came from. It was considered a capital offense to actually interfere with the flow of food to the capital because it was certain that if the flow of grain coming into the capital to make bread was cut off, that food riots would would
1: follow. Changing the topic a little bit, you wrote a fair amount about uh, Charles Darwin's fascination with soil and, and the life of earthworms. We usually associate Darwin so much with just all of his theories on natural selection, but why was he so obsessed with soil and with earthworms at the end of his life?
2: Yeah, his, the very last book he wrote in, the I think it was 1871, was about uh, the formation of soil through the action of worms. And uh, I hadn't appreciated that story until I started researching this book and realized, oh, Darwin wrote a book about soil and worms. I got to read it. It was actually the the book that I read that started me in writing my book because I I took a copy of it to uh, England where I had to to fly from Seattle where I live to England and give a talk the next day. And I thought, oh, I'll bring – I need to bring a good 19th century science book to put me to sleep so that I can get around jet lag. Turned out that the damn thing was fascinating. Kept me awake all night. Didn't help my lecture any, but it got me starting on writing dirt myself because what I read in Darwin's book was essentially the the observations integrated over a lifetime. He'd been watching worms uh, from the 1830s since literally when he got back from the Beagle to the the time he died. And he became very fascinated with the way that they actually reworked his fields. Uh, One of the things he noticed that got him sort of started to focus on worms, was one of his fields that he'd left fallow and uh, wasn't plowed for a while, but had been covered with with enough sort of rocks and stones on the surface that if a horse galloped across it, it made a lot of noise, that after that field was fallow for a decade, you didn't hear horses go across it anymore. And he dug a trench and started looking, where did all these stones go that were in the fields? Nobody had come to cart them away and nothing had happened. They just kind of disappeared and he found them down under about an inch about an inch down under new soil and the only thing he could tell that had been happening in that field was that worms were redigging their burrows after rainstorms and and doing their thing and essentially What he came to recognize as plowing the soil. He called worms God's plowman, essentially helped rework the soil of England. There's a long story about sort of all the things that he did to sort of study worms. He kept them in his study and fed them and observed their habits and so forth. By the end of his life, he was convinced that the worms of England had shaped the hills of England and had reworked the soils of England and that much of the fertility of the English landscape was due to the action of countless generations of worms turning over and mixing the soil and dragging organic matter down into the soil uh, that would improve the soil. And he really came to appreciate how the actions of these lowly creatures, these simple worms, over enough time, added up to essentially helping to set the agricultural foundation of the homeland of the British Empire. And some of his peers, when he published that book, thought he was kind of crazy, that you know, he had sort of gone from thinking about these grand ideas about evolution to you know worrying about what worms would do to the landscape. And yet, his view has been mostly vindicated over the last century, as people have come to understand that it's not just worms, but all kinds of biological activity influences the production and fertility of soils. He was ahead of his time on that one, too. But not enough people know about his uh, fascination with worms or his studies of the soils, um, but it's actually a pretty interesting book, despite the, his propensity to go on for multiple pages in a single sentence.
1: <laughs> well, he, he is a scientist, so that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is that propensity. Was that the first time in science that worms were recognized for the role that they play?
2: I think so, but I'm not, I'm not 100% certain about that. But it's the, I think it's the first time that they were really given center stage by a, by a major intellectual.
1: Yeah, and I
0: know vermiculture is very important in gardening, and that's something that I've been getting a lot into here in North Carolina. And one interesting that I've noticed in the Piedmont is that there's a lot of red clay. Was this always the case? Was there a, there used to be a fertile layer of topsoil here once and it has eroded away? Where did it go?
2: The story of the agricultural decline of the Piedmont in the American Southeast was a really interesting story that I hadn't really appreciated, although, you know, a century and a half ago, it's sort of where my family came out of, one branch of it. (laughs) Anyway, you know, the descriptions of the early soils in the region are that there was up to about a foot thick section of rich, fertile, black topsoil. The reddish soil in the region is, a lot of that is probably the the, bee, the exposed B horizon and the, what classically might be called the subsoil in the region. Bearing in mind that it likely varied in different parts of the region, there have been studies that have shown that something like, you know, four to 12 inches of topsoil was eroded off much of the Piedmont by colonial agriculture. Most part, probably tobacco cultivation um, from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, and it had a major influence on the sort of agricultural stability and the political evolution of that part of uh, the United States, and part of the push over the Appalachians to the west was to get at the rich, fertile black soil that was still in
1: Tennessee and Kentucky at the time. How much did the depletion of the east coast soils play into the westward migration? I'm sure there were a lot of factors in the kind of idea of manifest destiny of, and and all of that, but so much of the migration west occurred due to the soil depletion. Is is that one of the core ideas of the book? Yeah, that was one of the ideas that developed in the course of writing the book,
2: and that I think is actually pretty good in hindsight. But I had no idea about that when I started writing the book. As as a geologist, I hadn't. Yeah, I've been trained I uh, hadn't been taught that if you look at the worries over the power the problem of soil degradation along the eastern seaboard would affect the united states uh, and its evolution as a country the roots of those concerns go back to George Washington, who I, I think it was in 1792, thereabouts. i got the, the real numbers in the book, but I, th- I might have gotten that one right. He wrote in a letter to, I think, Alexander Hamilton about his worries that the the way that colonial agriculture was degrading the soils on the eastern seaboard was going to drive the United States over the Appalachians because we were an agricultural nation, and agricultural output depended on fertile soil, and the declining yields along the eastern seaboard were such that farmers were going to be enticed. Over the Appalachians by the promise of you know better yields and better soils on the other side of the mountains, and if you look at the um, sort of extent of erosion and forest degradation in the Piedmont region by about the eighteen what eighteen twenties, thirties, forties, mid nineteenth century, the population had actually decreased as people were going uh, increasingly to the other side of the mountains and continuing on west. And the whole idea of manifest destiny was was kind of reverse engineered, I think, later in that in the century. The draw of the West was, you know, undoubtedly due to a a variety of factors, some social, some economic. But at the root of some of the attraction was the idea that there was good fertile land to be had out there, and you could actually go and, you know, carve a new life and uh, make a living in fertile soils. If there's one thing that ought to be very attractive to farmers, it's the idea of having good soil. And so I think there was a lot to that to that connection, uh, essentially the, the draw of the West being the draw of, of new fertile soils. But obviously there are a lot of other factors that, that influence that as well. But again, my contention is this has played out that a lot of the social interactions that uh, could be viewed as the other factors played out on a stage set by the state of the land.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Dave Montgomery, author of DIRT the erosion of civilizations. What was it about the colonial agricultural policies that depleted the soil so rapidly? And really, is the tobacco monocropping that they practiced any different than the modern practice of corn monoculture we now see in the Midwest?
2: The real problem was essentially particular crops in large-scale monoculture. That that is, I think, as, as concise as one can put it. And the problem with colonial agriculture was that uh, colonial tobacco cultivation was such that the soil was bare for a fair part of the year, and tobacco was also very hard on depleting soil nutrients. So you could only get a couple years worth of productive crop out of a piece of land before you needed to move on to to other land, to fresh land. And that, in turn, led to the rise of plantation agriculture, which favored large-scale monocultures, which perpetuated the process and brought in the evil of slavery and other things that affected the history of the country. In comparing that to sort of what you might call modern monocultures, particularly corn is a very erosive crop if grown conventionally. If you've seen satellite images of the Midwest, uh, sort of seasonal satellite images, there's a part of the year where you're seeing the bare earth signal over a lot of the interior of the continent. Why? Well, because if there's essentially one crop, a large-scale monoculture, when the crop is not leafed out Nothing's covering the ground. And yet if you go out into a natural grassland, the native grasslands of the Midwest or a native forest, whether a coniferous or a deciduous forest, there's not a lot of bare ground. There's not a lot of bare ground exposed in most environments in the world outside of the sort of arid and sort of hyper-arid parts of the world. So if you have these fields that are have bare ground and they're in environments where you get rainstorms um, at the times of the year where the land is bare or your windstorms. The soil is, bare, is vulnerable to erosion, and the, the erosion rates in the Mississippi Basin are thought to be something like 10 to 20 times greater than the erosion rates that they were under native vegetation, and that means that they're probably 10 to 20 times faster than the rate rates of soil production in the region, which means we're essentially mining soil off of the lands that we're continuing to feed ourselves with. One of the big problems with the Roman agriculture was the transition from small-scale polyculture farms to large-scale uh, monocultures in the latifundia. Essentially, they're, they're version of large-scale industrial monocultures. And the, the problem with growing food using techniques that lead to the loss of the soil is that you can only do it for so long before you run out. Modern conventional agriculture using techniques that are erosive is no different. In fact, we may be doing it at a faster pace than previous societies were able to do it, but the principle remains the same.
0: Here in the United States, when you talk about soil erosion, the first thing that somebody's going to think about, you say soil erosion, they're going to say, oh, the Dust Bowl. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, How did the soils of the Midwest become so depleted so rapidly that it sparked the Dust Bowl? And maybe take that a step further and say, was there a connection between the depleted agriculture of that time and the Great Depression? And then maybe one step further after that is, are we headed towards a new Dust Bowl and a new Great Depression? maybe in the next 100 years or so. Well,
2: you can get me walk way out on the limb, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let me try and, and do each of those in, in sequence. And, you know, and the short answer to the last question is we may as well be heading for another Great Depression that has nothing to do with soil erosion. You know, I obviously hope that we're not, but the, the whole dynamics in the, uh, of economies that are essentially addicted to oil in a world that's running out of oil is, is not a recipe for economic stability. Uh, as long as we continue to blindly maintain our dependence on sources of fossil fuels, that is. Why were the soils in the Dust Bowl so erosive? Um, If you look back at the origin of where the soils from, particularly the the Mississippi Basin, the Midwest, and, and the western part of that basin, sort of west of roughly the 100th meridian, the semi-arid parts of the, of the country. A lot of the very rich agricultural soils in that region are what's known as loess soils, uh, it's sort of a mix of silt with a little bit of sand and clay, but dominantly silt. And the origin of those soils is that they were delivered by wind, they were wind deposited. You can still find the old pre loess landscape buried under these piles, thick piles of fairly fertile soil. The reason the list is so fertile is that it's fairly fresh mineral grains. There's a lot of nutrients still locked up in the minerals that could be weathered out and made available for um, plant nutrients. Where did the stuff come from? It's basically the soils and the surficial rocks that were scraped off of Canada by the ice sheet that grew and well, that waxed and waned over the glacial advances and retreats of the, over the last what, two, three million years. And those glaciers essentially pushed the loose surficial debris off of Canada down to the American Midwest like a great bulldozer, piled it up in front of the glaciers, and then they had, as you might imagine, would happen to rocks transported and crushed thousands of miles under a, a raging wall of ice. They got ground up to fairly fine size, and once it was delivered to the front of the glacier, and the glaciers melted off and retreated back. That stuff blew around in the wind, and it blew around in the winds, uh, the high winds that were in the front of the ice sheet, and it deposited these sort of thick deposits of loose soil. And if you look around the world, the big agricultural bread baskets of the world, the American Midwest, Eastern Europe, Northern China, are places where thick deposits of loose soil were, were deposited as a result of the the glacial action and uh, wind blowing around the redistributed material so you can think of the agricultural legacy of soils in that part the part of the world that contributed to the dust bowl as essentially a legacy where glaciers stole canada's soil and gave it to points farther south. So, what is it that made that then vulnerable? Well, the natural vegetation of that region was essentially grassland, and many of the areas that had the big problems in uh, the Dust Bowl days had been essentially Buffalo Prairie, where most of the biomass in the surface was in the roots below ground, and so you had essentially a very uh, integrated network of roots that essentially held the surface of the soil together. It held the in place. Because you get, still get fairly high winds blowing across the prairies. And what happened was that when large areas of the prairie were plowed, and that mat of roots that held the surface of the land together got broken up, there was nothing to hold the list in place. So the next time the wind blew, and the surface dried out, and you had this sort of powdered soil sitting and waiting around to be uh, just picked up and carried off by the wind. That's exactly what then happened. And so uh, you really had a confluence of several events in the early decades of the 20th century that led to the Dust Bowl. There was a great expansion of agriculture and plow-based agriculture on large farms where a lot of the the prairie grasslands were broken up and the loose soil was exposed. Then the next time that one of the region's periodic droughts came in, um, and there's no question the drought of the 1930s was the, the actual trigger of the Dust Bowl. But the stage had been set for the soil to blow away. That when the, this loose soil dried out, it created almost like a, almost like a layer of powdered soil on the surface that could just blow away. And so the real problem with the Dust Bowl was that the nature of the soils was such that because the wind had deposited them, If they're exposed to wind erosion again, the wind could take the stuff away. And it was a change in the surface condition of the earth through the Agency of Human Action and Farming that really allowed the next drought to trigger the Dust Bowl. If you look back through the history of that region, there had been dozens of similar droughts in the last 10,000 years that did not cause
1: the soil of the region to blow away. What was different was that this time, The grass wasn't in place to hold the soil. Maybe diving in a little bit to the the economic repercussions of that and connecting it maybe to the Great Depression, did you see any connection there? Well, you know, I
2: didn't look for a lot of connections to sort of what you might consider the national and international Great Depression, but it was certainly incredibly hard on the people in that region to have their livelihood blow away at a time when there were no other jobs. I mean, so the, the Dust Bowl took a great human toll on a large region, not just because of what was happening to the land, but because of the lack of other economic opportunities and the feedback that played into that. And I'm sure that the sort of the agricultural stagnation and collapse of that part of the country probably did contribute to the the, the larger scale of problems and issues in the in the Great Depression but you know the Great Depression was, was as, as much a global economic phenomenon as well so there's there's sort of two different scales there
1: so switching gears a little bit one of the fascinating points that I saw in your book was how the farmers of the shaoxing region, they would often eat more than twice the rice than they could digest to make human fertilizer. Can, can you talk a little bit maybe about how you discovered that practice or even found out about it? I learned about that in a, a paper that I think was written by Walter Loudermilk,
2: a soil conservation service scientist who worked in China in the 1920s and 30s and fortunately liked to write and, and has passed a fair number of of papers and stories down to to us and the, the story of that particular region of China I think was fascinating a region that had a very formalized system of returning their own waste their own organic waste human waste to their fields, and we've many people have heard of the sort of Chinese practice of returning night soil to the fields, and it's a way to maintain the, the agricultural productivity of the land and sort of cycle nutrients back from having gone through us back to the land. And they maintained this one province was very prosperous. They had agricultural output that was sort of the envy of their neighbors, and one of the ways that they maintained that was an elaborate system of public outhouses where you would at very nice sort of like roman bath kind of outhouses from what i can gather from louder description of them very attractive places to go do your business they basically collected the community's uh, waste and returned that to their fields and that they would um, essentially they produced enough food that they had essentially excess production over uh, some of their neighboring areas. But they were very loath to actually sell it and export it. Instead, they would gorge themselves and eat, and they would then have, you know, sort of partially processed rice as part of their waste stream. The idea, they needed to return the, the organic matter that was uh, that they were producing back to the land so it could then in turn produce more organic matter that they could then eat. They had the conception of essentially a grand cycle of nutrients from farm field to farmer to city back to uh, public outhouse back to farm field. The way that one would maintain soil fertility, there's two problems of course in terms of maintaining the productivity of soil and that's keeping the soil itself around, solving the problem of erosion, But there's also the problem of soil fertility and keeping soils that are there fertile and from getting depleted. And the the guys that you're talking about had the idea of how to essentially try and maintain the fertility over the long run. They they were not content to essentially mine fertility from the soil. They wanted to return fertility to the soil.
0: Well, right now we use a lot of fertility-adding substances, mostly derived from petrochemicals. Is there a way that we can return to that human-based fertilizer to the soil? Is that possible? Or are we full of too many pharmaceuticals now and too many (laughs) foreign chemicals that our uh, human-based fertilizer wouldn't even work now? Too
2: much caffeine, yeah. (laughs) That's a really good question. Let me parse it into a couple of things. uh, I think that we could return to a different style of agriculture that wasn't as dependent on fossil fuel-derived fertilizers and or petrochemicals. And I think we could return to an agriculture that was based on that, that was productive and sustainable and economic over the long run, an agriculture based on promoting ecological processes and life in the soil as the key to essentially catalyzing the fertility that supports life, you know, that grows in the soil and thus the life above the soil. In terms of what we can do with with human waste, I think that there are very real public health issues. There's very real issues in terms of the other nasties that are uh, along in the human waste stream now, the hormones, uh, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, heavy metals. But if you think about one thing we've been fairly good at, if you lay the problem to an engineer of how you would take, say, the human waste stream and... Clean it up so that it could essentially be used back in agriculture environments without introducing things you wouldn't want to have build up in the soil, or that could be toxic, or that you or have other health implications. I have some faith that one could devise a a waste treatment system that would actually break down and process those things. I mean, I've, I've talked with some people about that. It seems like there's some promise in the the potential to do so. But what it would require us to do is to essentially reconceive how we treat our own waste. And to many people, that's probably inconceivable that we could think about sort of changing that kind of a thing. But if you look back 150 years, toilets didn't exist. The whole idea of sort of like indoor plumbing is is a relatively new development in the history of our species. I think we could be much more sophisticated in terms of how we treat our own waste stream and try and turn what is now literally waste into something that has resource value in the same way that the chinese treated night soil well i think what we'd have to do is i mean we're not going to go back to the days of essentially you know medieval practices whether in sanitation or in farming the challenge i think is to apply modern science to those problems and try and crack them you know another obvious thing is to question whether we need so many hormones and pharmaceuticals and caffeine in our systems, but that's a whole different question to ask. that you made
3: out of the green That you hoped your father cut away Leave me on the tracks To a second
0: Today on The Extra Environmentalist, we're talking with David Montgomery, author of the book Dirt, Erosion of Civilizations.
1: Yeah, definitely. That goes into a completely different area, but... Don't take away my coffee. (laughs) So, uh, another really fascinating point from the book was all of the uh, rush around the Peruvian guano deposits. Um, They were, I read, 200 feet thick and and stood in mountains, and the stuff was so effective as a fertilizer, it sparked a gold rush mentality, basically, until it ran out. And so, in some ways, it's very similar to the problems with peak oil. Now, we hit peak guano quite a long time ago. You know, it's kind of strange to think about peak guano, but how how did that really affect agriculture? the mid-1800s, and maybe if you could speak a little bit about the 1856 Guano Island Act from uh, the United States government. Well, yeah, I advertise.
2: I don't quite remember the details of the 56 guano act off the top of my head, but the discovery of the phosphate fertilizers and guano as incredibly good fertilizer was greeted with, I mean, it, it literally did cause a gold rush, uh, a fertilizer rush, a guano rush. And today, of course, we've basically, those those guano islands have been mined out. It is no more. It's sort of a preview of what we might expect with oil in 100 or 200 years. So people talk about, oh, you know, the days of oil. But what was the idea of agricultural productivity being limited by sort of key nutrients was really popularized in the I think the eighteen forties by Justice von Liebig, who sort of came up with the idea that the ability of a soil to grow plants is limited by whatever key nutrient is in the least supply relative to the plant's demand for it. And then sort of led to the realization that sort of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, and sometimes to some degrees calcium, could be the limiting agents in agricultural production. So, when people started realizing that, that guano was sort of like magic go juice for plants growing for agriculture, and you could increase your yields on lands that had already been degraded, but say by long term plantation agriculture in the American South, all of a sudden you could revive your land and be making much better money as a plantation owner or just better harvest as a farmer. Uh, it created a huge demand for it. and Wasn't the '56 uh, Guano Act that basically gave anyone in the U.S. the right to sort of claim Guano Islands and then they become sovereign U.S. territory? Am I getting that
1: right? I thought it and, was so strange that the U.S. government would even just go to the extent of passing an act that said, all U.S. citizens, it's now legal to claim Guano Islands. Like that was just bizarre that some, a law like that would even have to be passed.
2: Yeah. Well, it, it was basically, you know, you could make a lot of money doing that, and uh, that the U.S. government has had a long history of sort of favoring particular industries in particular ways, and that is a very unusual and early example of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of interesting that 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 example was not played out in the Middle East in the 20th century with the discovery of oil, but um, times change, right? Well, the recognition that you could, by adding certain elements, whether it was guano or whether it was nitrogen, later with the the Haber-Bosch process, that you could greatly increase agricultural production, uh, really transformed and revolutionized agriculture in the 20th century as the recognition that yields could be increased by uh, aggressive addition of of fertilizer. That's a whole other story.
0: Maybe you could talk a little bit about the role that oil has in our society in, in feeding us. and. The, the Harbor Bosch process and how that magic grow juice, I mean, that you talked about, guano, is basically now oil in in our modern day society.
2: I gather if you look at the nitrogen in your body, uh, if you have sort of an average person eating sort of averagely grown food, Roughly half of that nitrogen probably originated as natural gas. That is the feedstock for developing nitrogen-based fertilizers today. The haber bosch process was a process that uh, uh, converts atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia that then becomes biologically available. And we're, we're bathed in nitrogen pretty much every day, but it's, N2 is an inert molecule, and it, it's energetically very inefficient to crack it. So it takes a lot of energy to produce fertilizers, and indeed some of the feedstock is... Um, uh, natural gas, we were able as a species to, to crank up agricultural production in the 20th century by applying a lot of nitrogen to the fields. And it turns out that nitrogen was a limiting nutrient for many of our major crops in uh, many regions. Yeah, so so basically, there's two, there's two real cons- uh, ways. One is as an indirect part of what then fertilizes the soil, gets a- integrated into plants, gets integrated into crops, and we then eat. So there's this direct link that there you can trace uh, how oil oil in the term of fossil fuels is directly supporting agriculture. And the other link is indirectly in terms of how fossil fuels and, and oil and petroleum in particular are are used to support the large-scale mechanized agriculture that we then apply the fertilizers with and, and use to grow food over large areas. It's some analyses I've seen suggest that we use something on the order of 10 calories of fossil fuels to grow one calorie of food. And if that's the case, I mean, we're literally directly and indirectly eating oil in that it's supporting our agricultural enterprise. And it's essentially the ingredient that is uh, spurring the higher crop yields that are actually feeding people. At least the agricultural enterprise in much most of the developed world is something that's fundamentally hooked on oil at present. Personally, I think that we need to rectify that situation, if only because it's extremely unlikely that the price of oil is going to come down in the next century. And if you look back at that guano experience, we're eventually going to run out of it. And as a geologist, running through off the backside of peak oil down to the point where there's really not that much so that we ever, it'll be powering everything in the world. You know, running through that over the course of, say, the next 50 or 60 years, to me, that's the blink of an eye. I mean, to a geologist, that's like instantaneous. And we're not planning for the transition. And yet, the, the longer we go hooked on oil on our agricultural enterprise, the harder I think it will be to make the transition. We really should be starting to think about what, what would agriculture look like in a post-oil world, the, the recent disturbances and revolutions in the, in, in the Middle East ought to be making us think that, well, you know should we be counting on a stable supply of oil to play through what we might think of as the end of the oil era? I think it would behoove us all to start societally thinking about what a really sustainable agriculture would look like in a post-oil world and starting to take those steps that would, would sort of foster the development of that kind of agriculture so that it's essentially in place and ready to go when we may
1: really need it. And I think we have a long way to go on on both those scores. I always wonder why we call it natural gas and not natural oil or natural coal. Any insight into that as a geologist?
2: Uh, Well, because it's actually a gas. (laughs) (laughs) And you can derive natural gas from... Uh, other deposits and 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 processing of things but i think that you can also basically get it directly from the ground as i understand it
1: i i just mean really the prefix natural like we we say natural Uh gas but like for oil and coal we natural 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 oil you know i don't have any
2: idea (laughs) i have no idea it's an interesting irony but you know it's but coal is natural oil is natural they're 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 very uh natural um Products. The key problem, of course, with fossil fuels, is that the carbon that's locked up in them was uh, naturally locked up in a completely different geologic era. <laughs> you know that you know in a right. time when that stuff, the stuff that we're now liberating into the atmosphere, has been sequestered out of circulation for you know, millions of years, and so we're basically taking the sort of organic legacy. And climate connections from past eras, and just pumping it into the sky, introducing it into our era. It's I guess it's not so much that the the products themselves aren't natural, it's what we're doing with them may be considered not natural. In ter- at least in terms of sort of short term, or sort of moving something from one geologic era and introducing it and into another one. It's it's there's very. There's not a lot of precedent
1: for that in the the history of the world. What would a sustainable agriculture look like? Um, We're speaking about all of these problems, and just to kind of take it home, what would your vision of sustainable agriculture look like? Would it be organic farming, or would it be no-till soil, or or no-till farming practices? Kind of sketch that out for us.
2: The big challenge in trying to develop a highly productive and sustainable agricultural system Is going to involve abandoning the plow, going to some kind of no or low-till methods that don't disturb the soil as much and don't leave it bare and vulnerable to wind and rain. We've got to conserve the soil itself. But at the same time, conserving the fertility of the soil, the native soil fertility in a post-oil world, I think really will take going organic on a large scale and figuring out how to do that in conjunction with with no-till techniques. It could be a real challenge to figure out how to do that on large farms. But why I think we could actually have the hope of feeding the world with, uh, with organic agriculture is that if you look at some of the highest crop yields from farms around the world, they're from small-scale organic farms. Now, whether we need to move away from large-scale industrialized agriculture to smaller-scale agriculture, I think that's actually a very open question because I I think we could learn how to do large-scale organic and no-till agriculture in ways that would conserve soil fertility and the soil itself, but we haven't put a lot of thought or energy societally into investigating and promoting and experimenting with those techniques. Philosophically, I think what we have to do to arrive at a sustainable agriculture is tailor what we do to the land in terms of our agricultural practices rather than tailoring, trying to beat the land into behaving under the sort of uniform agricultural techniques we would tend to apply to it, such as the use of the plow or the overuse of fertilizers and and agrochemicals. One of the things that really surprised me in researching this book was the number of studies I was able to find that have reported in fairly prominent outlets that organic agriculture can come close to or match the production of what we now call conventional agriculture, and how many studies have shown that it can be just about as profitable. There's a bit of a price premium today on organic agriculture. If a lot of or- agriculture went organic, that price premium might disappear uh, or might change. But the lower input costs, the lower cost for agrochemicals for farmers can help to offset any income problems on farms.
0: You're if- saying that people could produce really high quality organic food for the same Profit margins as, as they're making now.
2: There's been some studies that have shown that for at least for particular crops, yeah, I mean, in part because the uh, the input costs are lower, and so if they have a slightly lower yield or if some of it is not usable, they can actually their bottom line is actually can be commensurate or better.
0: Why do you think that they don't move to those methods then? Is it not geopolitically tenable? Is it why why would they would they not want to move that way then?
2: Boy, uh, you know, I think if there's one thing. Other than short-term planning people are really good at, it's like not not wanting to change. You know, I've got my own habits. I'm sure you've got your own habits. Everybody has their own habits. The, the way that we do things is can be very hard for us to change. And if you look at uh, most farmers around the world, the best predictor of how they farm is how their parents farmed. There's a sort of the inertia, if you will, in agricultural methods is actually fairly astounding relative to the sort of... Uh, Evolution that I think that you see in culture around the world. Our cultures are incredibly diverse, even though we most have developed in just the last you know ten thousand years, and and at a time in which the, you know, the sort of uh, changes to ourselves, to humanity, are virtually unnoticeable. You take people from the last ice age, give them a shave and a haircut, and dress them up in modern clothes, and I bet you wouldn't be able to really tell the difference between uh, most people in the modern world if you. Did the same thing. So I think that the problem of change is is a very difficult one for people to embrace without an incentive. And so what, what makes me an optimist that agricultural practices are going to move more towards both no-till and organic practices over the next century It's what I think we can expect to see in the price of oil. As the price of oil goes up, there's going to be a very strong economic incentive for farmers to actually uh, make those kinds of changes. And no-till practices, for example, have been increasingly adopted by, at a pace of about a half a percent per year for the last 40 years or so, I think we'll see that accelerate as the price of oil goes up because it'll become increasingly expensive to actually drive machinery around the fields. And if you have to do that less often uh, with no-till practices, it'll become more attractive. Same argument, I think, goes for organic agriculture. So if you kind of want to accelerate the process of what I hope will be our ultimate conversion to a sustainable organic agriculture, best thing you could do is, is... have the price of oil go through the roof, and I think that's probably the one thing we can probably be certain is going to happen sometime this century, probably gradually, uh, perhaps in a series of spikes, but I don't think it's going to come down in the future. So I think the incentives to change will just get
0: stronger in the future. Isn't it too bad that it takes a crisis for people to change? That's always too bad. I'm sure through your, uh, your worldview has definitely changed with the research of this book. Did it confirm any suspicions that you had, or we're just kind of wrapping up, kind of just asking some conclusion questions here? Did, huh. did you confirm any suspicions that you had about soil, and did it change your personal behavior?
2: Yeah, so that the, the answer would be a double yes, in the sense that the um, yeah, I actually read a book when I was an undergraduate called Topsoil and Civilization, and Dirt was my attempt to update that book. When I read Topsoil uh, top Civilization, I was a, a, a budding geologist, and it made me appreciate soil. I sort of looked at it. I looked at it differently. In researching dirt, I went into it thinking I was really writing just sort of a history of soil erosion. And what I discovered in it was just how similar the history of many societies were and how absolutely fundamental the way that people treat land is to the longevity of civilizations and societies and i had a suspicion of that going into the the uh, the project the project but i didn't really have a full appreciation of i think how fundamental it actually is and how generalizable it is in terms of my own behavior one of the things i was very intrigued by in while i was writing the book was that my wife was uh, restoring the soil in our yard in north seattle we live on a a lot that had been cleaned off once by the glaciers 10, 15,000 years ago, and then again by developers about a century ago. They sort of reset the soil back to what it was like when the glaciers had cleaned it off. Anne is a, a major league gardener. It's her, her hobby and her passion. And she basically, over the course of about eight years, grew about two inches of thick, fertile soil in our yard. And that's a pace at which it really surprised me. She now grows about a third of our food for the about six months of the year in on these two small plots in our yard with this incredibly fertile soil she's uh, regenerated. And I didn't fully appreciate how rapidly we can turn around the problem of soil degradation until she demonstrated it to me in the backyard while I was inside writing this book about how ancient societies had taken out their soil. So we're now working on a book that is essentially making the argument for global soil restoration and trying to show how it could be done and how people can do it in their own yards, how we could do it on farms, how we could do it globally. and It seems to me that the key is really two things, organic matter and labor. How those resources get arrayed in the future is really going to, I think, right the future.
1: That sounds fantastic. And We we spoke so much about the problems and issues today, so perhaps we can have you back on when that book comes around so we can focus on more of the positive aspects of how we can regenerate everything. No, we'd
2: love to. It's it's provisionally titled Unpaving Paradise. Uh, We're writing it essentially to try and highlight just how much potential there is to address these problems and to not relive the experience of ancient societies and how one can look at it optimistically because many of the answers are actually fairly simple and involve sort of simple changes in, in how we treat the land. And we found that in changing the way that we treat our own yard, we now have this incredible garden that gives back to us as much as we give to it in the sense that uh, it's a very rejuvenating place to hang out. We grow food in it. It screens the neighbor's house that we don't like to look at. There's all kinds of advantages to it.
0: So, yeah, I guess we're, we're kind of finished our, with our interview. If there's anything else that, that we didn't really hit on or you, you'd like to, to make a point about, you can do that now.
2: Okay, well, I would just encourage people to read the book. If you're at all curious about other aspects of what I do, uh, you can look at my research at the University of Washington. And if you want to hear my band's new album, you can go to uh, Big Dirt Music on MySpace.
0: Dave, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate you hanging out with us today.
2: No worries. It was fun to talk to you. Have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. You guys too.
1: So that wraps up our interview with Dr. David Montgomery from the University of Washington and author of Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations. Seth, give me some of your reactions. What did, what did you think about the argument that topsoil erosion leads to the decline and collapse of civilizations?
0: Firstly, we know that we're not supposed to call soil dirt. That's something that I realized in talking to David. And uh, secondly, who knew that soil was so freaking important to the world i mean growing stuff sure but why do we need to grow stuff why can't we just grow somewhere else oh because it directly correlates the length of our of our country's rise to power oh that's that's interesting david gave a lot of great points about how that happens and why civilizations rise and fall based on their quality of soil and How people take care of their soil and he gave some pretty compelling proof about the direction of countries that don't take care of their soil and being the United States we do not take care of our soil so
1: yeah dump truck load of soil of topsoil goes into the Gulf every second like that's an incredible amount of soil that is washing down into the Mississippi River and going out into the Gulf of Mexico and of course, once the soil goes out there, it's mixed with the oil and then it becomes useless. So uh,
0: It's tough that we have to pump up our soil with all kinds of oil-based fertilizers to make monoculture crops to feed ourselves. But when you support 7 billion people in a world, you have to get it from somewhere.
1: I think it's interesting to look at the ways our civilization views technology and the primacy of technology and the ability to solve the problems and predicaments we've we found ourselves in. I think in a lot of ways those philosophies work. Like if you have the internet or if you have a computer, you can do a lot of really cool stuff with with those devices. But the one thing that technology really can't help us with, especially electronic-based technology, is where we get our food from. And I know that there's a lot of different GIS tracking devices that you can go out and use these geographical information systems to, to learn more about the way the land is oriented. And, and you, you can do all these things like map and database stuff. And so there, there are ways to use electronic technology to help with food output. But at the end of the day, it really is all reliant on soil. And there's very few ways that technology can actually help us maintain and preserve our soils other than sharing conversations with geomorphologists that warn us about the issues of ignoring our soil and It really gets you back to the roots of civilization because at the end of the day, we're still just uh, reliant on where we get our food from and how we eat. No matter how many layers of abstraction we built on top of it, we're all still dependent on that and a lot of people forget that. When I think about issues of peak oil and and resource depletion, in a lot of ways I don't think it's as big of an issue as some people make it out to be because i think peak oil is a solvable problem we can find ways to use a lot less oil and we can use some technology to actually improve our efficiency but the one thing that using less and adapting using technology can't help us with is the way that we use all these fossil fuels to deal with our food to actually grow our food and that's the one thing that actually makes me very concerned about issues of oil and resource depletion is all of our civilization is built on this industrial agricultural system that's incredibly sensitive to oil and the price of oil and the supply of oil and David Montgomery makes a really good point that we've depleted the fertility of our soils and in doing that we've used all these petrochemicals and become completely dependent on petrochemicals so no matter about the peak oil issues with plastic production and different fibers for clothes and transportation. I think those could be solved and worked out over a long period of time. But what really concerns me when it comes to oil depletion is absolutely the, the issue with food. And I think David Montgomery makes a really good point on organic agriculture and how it can be very uh, efficient and actually output more food per piece of land. But the one thing that changes is the amount of labor that has to go into that piece of land. And so That's the sticking point because all of our industrial civilization and development has been about reducing manual labor and using energy to substitute for manual labor. And so that's what's going to change. The process
0: of photosynthesis really hasn't changed much over the technology (laughs) improvements in our culture. You know, we make those processors on the computers faster and we make our our automobiles faster and more efficient. And they can can get, what, like 35 miles to a gallon now? Mm. But... Those crops that we still buy still have to grow somewhere. They still have to, to use nutrients from the ground and they you still have photosynthesis with the sun. They still have to be harvested in some way and they have to get to you. They have to go through all those different steps and they, those steps really haven't changed too much since the beginning of time. I mean, people planted crops long ago and they still do the same thing today. Our methods of collection might be a little bit different and our methods of processing these these ingredients might be a little bit different, but the actual process of letting that crop grow in the sun really hasn't changed too much.
1: I would and love to see a keynote, a Steve Jobs keynote on a new version of photosynthesis.
0: I just read a quote that about the new Final Cut Pro that's coming out for video editing that says if Henry Ford listened to everyone's advice, he would have made a faster horse. When you look ahead and you see the future and you see where things are going, the trends that are involved in the progression of a species it takes real vision to see the head of that curve and to see the next step of the evolutionary process and where that's leading us. Dave Montgomery does a really good job of that by looking at the past and seeing that our system of feeding ourselves is really not sustainable.
1: Actually, for class, I was reading a book called The Long Descent by John Michael Greer and it's about the end of the industrial age, and one of the key questions from that book is looking back on all the technologies from the last few hundred years and saying which ones are actually going to be useful in the next few hundred years. And John Michael Greer's answer is organic agriculture, that the invention of organic agriculture and permaculture, when our great-grandchildren look back on this time period, they will say those were the most important innovations from this age. I don't know. What what do you think, Seth? is the most important technological innovation of, of our modern civilization. How will our ancestors look back on us and and take our technological legacy?
0: Well, I know our personal ancestors will be really happy that we, we were able to put our voices down into a uh, podcast so that they can listen to it later. Can you ever think about that? Your kids' kids' kids are going to be able to pull up your podcast and listen to the things that you had to say back in the day when this is actually living history right now that we're making because people, million years from now, will be able to pull up this digital file and listen to what these so naive people were thinking about back in 2011.
1: I hope we come across as not completely clueless, or our ancestors are like, if only they knew that asteroid was coming next week.
0: Can it be anything but clueless because the future, you know, you don't know the future. And when you look at it with hindsight, is so clear and you can see the exact ways that they should have acted and they should have behaved but when you don't have that benefit of hindsight you're just walking blind you don't have any way of seeing what the future is and we don't live in the fourth dimension where we can see all of our past at the same time we can't see all of our future we live in the moment the only thing that we have right now is this second this this one little bit of time is the only our reality can consist of at at any moment but in
1: a lot of ways the problems that we face now we don't have to worry about hindsight because we see them coming we have a lot of people like David Montgomery and Jack Alpert and all the other people we've interviewed in doing this podcast who are saying, here's the problem, here's historical reasons why this problem is important to pay attention to, and we don't do anything about it. I just went to see Bill McKibben speak at UBC last night and he was talking about how we've known about climate change since the 1980s. I mean really we've known about it since the early nineteen hundreds when the chemist Arrhenius wrote his paper about how increased concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere will lead to warming on the planet and lead to a greenhouse effect. But in terms of public policy recognition of climate change and scientific policy recognition of climate change. We've really known about it for a long time. While scientists have done their job in saying this is a problem, here's all the reason why it's a problem, here's what's causing it. And while engineers have done their job in improving, you know, wind turbine technology and solar panel technology, we still haven't done anything about it at all. And that's a serious issue because when you have something that has absolutely catastrophic, I don't even like to think about climate change because peak oil, it seems, has a very individual kind of human response that you can take to it but when it comes to climate change it's so global and it's so catastrophic that I to be naive and try to avoid thinking about it but Bill McKibben is right when you can't get any sort of societal momentum at all because this issue has no relevance to the way our political and economic systems work. That's really disconcerting. And I mean his approach is to say there's no guarantee that we're going to win, but we have to try to fight. But I wonder what people like Bill McKibben really think. Do they really think that just because you know we're rising up and uh, and trying to build a movement now, is that going to change anything because for 20 years We've known about all this and people have been talking about it and trying to raise awareness and nothing's happened. I really hope, I really want to be optimistic and I want to say that yes, if enough people just stopped going to work and said, you know climate change is an issue peak oil is an issue that it would change but then I look at the political dialogue here in Canada and none of the political parties and elections coming up soon and none of the political parties are talking about anything related to anything that matters they're all talking about tax revenues and the same thing in the US you know uh, 60 billion dollars or whatever was the amount that the republicans wanted to cut but that's like 10 percent of what they're gonna have to cut next year they're gonna have to cut 600 billion dollars next year if it took this long just to cut i think they ended up deciding something like 40 billion it took this long to actually debate and decide which 40 billion they're gonna cut in 365 days they're gonna have to talk about cutting 10 times that much no they uh, won't
0: they'll just push it for the <laughs> line
1: i guess so but eventually you keep pushing a problem off and you push a problem off like topsoil depletion and then you end up having no topsoil and no crops can grow. And then you really have to face the consequences. And so, like I said, I want to be optimistic and I want to say that, yes, it can happen. But none of the political dialogue that's going on in any country at this moment, any developed nation, really has any connection to reality.
0: We just have to hope that we find a cheap, easy way to make electricity that will just save our world.
1: Oh, yeah. Coal fusion all the way. But I was reading a book called Manage Austerity and the Elements of Hope. It's about non-renewable resources and the author Andre Derden, he wrote in there, as long as there are individuals and groups of people actively pursuing necessary behavior change and policy, once they understand the issues in a realistic manner, there is reason to remain hopeful. And I've got to agree with that, like there's not a whole lot of value in saying like this is optimism, this is pessimism, I'm going to be optimistic or pessimistic. There is value though in understanding. understanding the problems in a realistic way and trying to do something about it. So
0: do you feel the tide changing, Justin? Do you feel that this movement is building momentum and that that pretty soon these topics are going to crest and there will be a political candidate who feels the same passion that we speak about in all of our shows and all of our podcasts and there will rise up a movement behind that person that will bring these issues to the forefront and there will be large changes in government and the world will see a change all across it and governments will topple and people will rise to the challenge and make a world that is sustainable and and renewable and positive for the environment and help our species reach the stars and change the universe?
1: I think that's why the Extra Environmentalist is slowly preparing for its run for the 2016 United States Presidency. So you yeah. heard here first, folks. It's on the way. The extra environmentalist, not me, not Seth. The actual podcast will be our next president.
0: Maybe we can just dress up like a little yellow alien. I think we'll have around. to defeat
1: Trump for his, his re-election bid. That'll be tough. Yeah, I think Trump's most likely his campaign slogan will be change you can put in your pocket.
0: And then he'll just give
1: you a dime. That closes it out for, for us today. Uh, enough chatter from seth and i keep listening to the podcast keep sharing with your friends give us some feedback seth how can people get in touch with us
0: people can get in touch with our podcast (laughs) through the internet which is where you've gotten this podcast in the first place www.extraenvironmentalist.com is our website podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com is our email address and Justin, what is our, our voicemail box that people can use to get in touch with us?
1: People can use their voice just in the same way that we use our voice and give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two. So give us a call and let us know what you think.
0: Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us anywhere else that we decide to be followed at. We love to hear from you. So give us a, a message any way you can. Review us on iTunes and Get the word out. Send it to your grandmother. Send it to your mother. Send it to your aunt, your uncle, to your your stepson, and your strange stepdaughter. We would love for you to pass on the message.
1: Definitely. To all of your somewhat awkward familial connections.
0: Indeed. And on that note, have a wonderful day.
1: Goodbye.
2: On a sunny August day in the late 1990s, I led an expedition up the flank of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines to survey a river still filled with steaming sand from the massive 1991 eruption. The riverbed jiggled coyly as we trudged upriver under the blazing tropical sun. Suddenly I sank into my ankles, then my knees, before settling waist deep in hot sand. While my waiters began steaming, my graduate students went for their cameras. After properly documenting my predicament and then negotiating a bit, they pulled me from the mire. Few things can make you feel as helpless as when the earth gives way beneath your feet. The more you struggle, the deeper you sink. You're going down, and there's nothing you can do about it. Eating the loose riverbed felt rock solid after that quick dip in boiling quicksand. Normally, we don't think too much about the ground that supports our feet, our houses, cities, and farms. Yet even if we take it for granted, we know that good soil is not just dirt. When you dig into rich, fresh earth, you feel the life in it. Fertile soil crumbles and slides right off a shovel. Look closely and you'll find a whole world of life-eating life, a biological orgy, recycling the dead back into new life. Healthy soil has an enticing and wholesome aroma, the smell of life itself. Yet what is dirt? We try to keep it out of sight, out of mind, and outside. We spit on it, denigrate it, and kick it off our shoes. But in the end, what's more important? Everything comes from it, and everything returns to it. If that doesn't earn dirt a little respect, consider how profoundly soil fertility and soil erosion shaped the course of history. At the dawn of agricultural civilizations, the 98% of people who worked the land supported a small ruling class that oversaw the distribution of food and resources. Today, the less than 1% of the U.S. population still working the land feeds the rest of us. Although most people realize how dependent we are on the small cadre of modern farmers, Few recognize the fundamental importance of how we treat our dirt for securing the future of our civilization. And that simple point is essentially what, helped, what motivated me to write the book, because I to take off from there and explore that through the history of human societies.